They say that in the case of mysterious deaths, the first 48 hours are critical. If investigators don't make a breakthrough in that time, the chances of resolving the case are greatly diminished. But what if you don't make a breakthrough in the first 48 hours or the first 48 days? What if you don't make a breakthrough in 48 years? Welcome to the mysterious case of Fred the Head and one of the UK's most baffling unsolved crimes. Episode 7 Two Victims and a Perpetrator When I set out to create this podcast I had two main objectives to tell the story as accurately as I could and to move the story through investigation get closer to the truth and those objectives haven't changed there are certain things though about the case that I simply haven't got round to covering yet and I thought this episode would be the perfect opportunity to do that it also by the way gives me an opportunity to outline maybe the way the podcast will develop from here there are clearly avenues for investigation that I want to follow and this takes time a great deal of time I'm recording this episode on Easter Sunday 4th of April and we'll release it hopefully on Tuesday 6th of April so we're all pretty much caught up now I am hoping to interview DS Eisen next week so we can bring everything right up to date with the view of the current state of the investigation after the crime watch appeal but it will also allow me to ask some questions of the police that have occurred to me through this investigation and that I've had never had the chance to ask before and there are about 20 of them that I think will be pretty much the end of season one that will end up being nine episodes I think it's a little earlier than I'd originally planned so why is that well because some things on the investigative side have moved on a little quicker than I expected and I feel the need to do some proper investigative work to commit some proper time to this soon the libraries will be open again and I want to be able to use those resources to do some serious digging so will there be a season two yes definitely I'm hoping to release that at the end of the year probably around November time but of course if there are any developments in the meantime I'll release a special update as they happen but the next six months will really give me a chance to go further and further down the rabbit hole but there are these loose ends that I wanted to tell you all about if I'm going to tell you the whole story you need to be aware of them they generally fall into three areas firstly potential victims there are victims who have emerged in the course of the investigation over the last 50 years who looked like serious contenders for being Fred the Head. Secondly, I want to talk about the reconstruction of the head. You will have seen reconstructions of the head, particularly on Crime Watch, and that was a process that was undertaken a few years ago, and I want to talk to you about what they learned through that reconstruction process, because it's important to the story. Thirdly, although all the way through this season we've been focusing on who was Fred the head and not who the perpetrator was it is worth talking about one potential perpetrator 
No idea whether he was involved or not. But you see his name, particularly recently, associated with the case. And I thought it might be worth bringing that to the podcast at this point. I'll probably finish this podcast with a little bit of an update as to where I am with the current investigations. So, potential victims. The first potential victim to emerge was a man called Brian Edge. Now, he was raised as a potential victim at the coroner's inquest in 1974. Indeed, his brother was interviewed by Mr. Auden, who led that inquest in 1974. So he was seen as a serious potential victim. Brian Edge was a married man, a father of three, who had mysteriously gone missing from his home in Watford, about a hundred miles south of Burton, in 1970. He disappeared after finishing his job as a milk delivery man, a milkman, and although he was traced to a hotel in London shortly afterwards, nothing was really ever seen or heard from him again. The mystery deepened a little because he later wrote to his wife and asked her to place an advert in the News of the World newspaper. There was something he needed to tell her that once he saw the advert in circulation, he could. Why he needed to see an advert in circulation before telling her something just remains a mystery. But that was pretty much the last anyone ever heard or saw of him. In 1974, at the resumed inquest, District Coroner Mr. Auden raised the subject of Brian Edge's disappearance. He questioned his brother at that inquest. So he was clearly being considered a very serious candidate. His brother said he hadn't been in contact with Brian for five years, so that would have been since 1969. He said he'd never been in trouble with the police, and therefore there'd be no fingerprints for Brian, but also that he, to his knowledge, had never been involved in what he called unnatural sexual acts. The police were in a position where they could not satisfactorily eliminate him from their inquiries. A bit more information about Brian Edge. He was born on the 9th of January 1941 in Dublin. He came to the UK in 1961 and he married in 1961. On the day of his disappearance, he left for work. It was April the 2nd, 1970, and he never returned home. By the evening, the family was getting concerned and the police were notified. Police investigated his disappearance and it was found that when he disappeared, he was approximately £150 short in his takings. Now, £150 doesn't sound like a lot of money, but it's about £1,300 to £1,400 today, so significant. And there was talk about gambling debts and things, so maybe something of that nature was going on. But in August 1970, Edge wrote a letter giving his address as the President Hotel, Russell Square, London, asking for an appointment with a probation officer. He never kept that appointment. And inquiries at the hotel did reveal that he had lived there until August 1970. On the discovery of Fred's body, Brian Edge was a potential victim. Therefore, the evidence that police collected, the ring, the socks, the dental work and the denture, was shown to his wife. His wife, saw the ring and said it in no way resembled the one that her husband wore, which was a signet ring with a stone in. Furthermore, she was certain that he didn't possess any dentures or have any kind of extensive dental treatment. 
and also the socks didn't match anything she'd ever seen. So it's very difficult now to wonder why he was ever considered a serious potential victim. Police weren't able to eliminate him from their inquiries, but even what we know would probably rule him out. If he was definitely in London in August 1970, that's only nine months before the body's found. And remember, the body needed time to decompose for at least nine months. The body had socks bought in Burton, with signs of wear. There wasn't enough time for Edge to be the body. Even if he got to Burton in August 1970, and why would he do that? He had no previous connections to Burton, and bought the socks on the day of his arrival and wore them every day. There just wasn't the time for him to be killed and buried in time. So even if the police weren't in a position to completely eliminate Brian Edge, I'm eliminating him. Last week, on the 50th anniversary of Fred's discovery, there was a BBC Crime Watch reconstruction broadcast. Now in fact, that is the third Crime Watch broadcast in this case. There were two previous ones, one in 2006 and one in 2017. Both of those Crime Watch broadcasts coincided with what police believed to be major breakthroughs in the investigation. In 2006, that major breakthrough was the construction of a face. Police had been working with Dr. Caroline Wilkinson of the University of Dundee. Using the skull, Dr. Wilkinson had been able to complete a detailed facial reconstruction of Fred the Head. Dr. Wilkinson was a renowned expert in this facial reconstruction and she made a detailed 3D scan of the skull and then painstakingly added layers of muscle and tissue onto the bones, resulting in the finished face. And in the 2006 Crime Watch programme, the face of Fred the Head was revealed to the world for the first time. Complete with short, light-coloured hair, the skull became a human face, which when shown to an audience of millions Detectives believed would yield the breakthrough in the case that they had waited for for so long. Dr Wilkinson's work revealed two other key findings. She believed Fred suffered from a condition called torticollis, a muscular deformity of the neck that would have caused his head to tilt noticeably to the right. She also identified a significant underbite to his jaw. That meant the lower jaw would have jutted out noticeably. Armed with these two pieces of information and a face to show millions of people in the UK, police were understandably very optimistic that they were about to reveal the true identity of Fred the Head. But sadly, despite their high hopes, despite the undoubted expertise in the reconstruction techniques used, as time went by, they realised no compelling leads were emerging. Now I want to talk a little bit more about torticollis. I want to explain exactly what this is. Torticollis is a problem involving the muscles of the neck that cause the head to tilt downwards on one side. We all have a long muscle on each side of the neck which runs from the back of your ear to your collarbone. 
It's called the sternocleidomastoid. Now, if one of those muscles, for whatever reason, is shortened or impaired or tightened, the head won't be held upright evenly. It will tilt downwards on one side. In Fred's case, to the right. Now, it has a number of causes. It can be caused at birth through the trauma of actually the birthing process. It can develop slowly if there's a family history of the disorder. It can be caused by infection. If you get an infection of the nerves or the muscles around that area, that can cause torticollis. It can even be caused by drugs, particularly by the use of antipsychotics. Now the problem is, it can be permanent or extremely temporary. 90% of cases are resolved through simple exercise relatively quickly, usually going away after only a few days. Essentially, it's the stiff neck that we've all experienced at one time or another. So I'm a little bit nervous about attaching too much emphasis of torticollis to Fred's recognizability. It might have been a very temporary situation. Interesting to note, of course, the pathology at the time of his death, when the autopsy was done, never even picked it up. The other thing that causes torticollis, though, is trauma, force, impact. And that brings me to a very odd footnote in this case, which I've never mentioned before, because there's no real way of checking whether it's true or not. I'm referring now to the book Fred the Head and Unsolved Mysteries by Michael Posner. Now, if you have that book, I'm specifically talking about page 93. Now, in that book, a comment was reported to be made by Professor Keith Mant, who, remember, was the senior pathologist, to a senior detective as he accompanied the pathologist back to Burton Railway Station. Mant is reported to have said... There are a series of deep indentations in the upper spinal area just below his head. When you find the perpetrator, ask him what he hit him with. Now, this is peculiar. Firstly, I have no way really of checking whether that is factual or not. And remember, there's no other reference made to this injury in the autopsy or the pathology report. It's never been publicly revealed. Why, if this trauma seemed to have happened to his spinal area, did Mant not mention it and still feel that it was a sexual act that went wrong? But if there was damage to that spinal area, was it that that caused the neck muscles to be damaged in the way that Dr. Wilkinson describes? The failure of the BBC Crime Watch reconstruction in 2006 must have been a devastating blow for the police. It's quite understandable. After that point, the trail goes cold again. But in June 2017, the police announced a very major breakthrough in the case. They had been working with a renowned dental expert and they'd been reviewing the missing persons records of that era. And remarkably, they had found a potential match. John Henry Jones had gone missing 
from his home in North Wales in autumn 1970. He lived in a small village called Trevor, which is between Llangollen and Wrexham. He had simply disappeared without trace. But he did have very unusual dentistry, just like Fred. D.S. Eisen said at the time, In the last week we have had a breakthrough. We brought in a dental expert to review missing persons records and that brought a name forward, John Henry Jones. And that's what police revealed in the 2017 Crime Watch reconstruction. Unlike 2006, this time the police got a break. The family of John Henry Jones saw that Crime Watch reconstruction and made contact. At last, using the DNA that they had, using the dental records that they had, police had never been closer to identifying the body. In the week that followed the Crime Watch appeal, Staffordshire Police announced that they had been contacted by a member of John Henry Jones's family and that comparative DNA analysis could take place. Over the next few months, as the DNA comparison was completed, the police and the Burton community held its breath. Then, on the 25th of July 2017, the police revealed the result of that DNA comparison. John Henry Jones was not Fred the Head and he could be eliminated from their inquiries. The police, after 50 years, were back to square one. If you're getting as intrigued as I am about this case, good, I need your help. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered to your phone, tablet or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify or Podbean. Now, back to the story. Anthony Hardy was a serial killer. Now, serial killers are rarely nice people, but he was amongst the most depraved. He killed at least three women in Camden, London in the early 2000s, dismembering the bodies of two of them in order to hide the victims. And police believe he was responsible for many more murders, probably another six he's been linked with in London. He became known as the Camden Ripper. He was jailed in 2003 for life, and for him, it meant life. He died last year from sepsis and COVID complications, one of the few positive things to come from the corona epidemic. Born in 1951, he was a very intelligent child. He excelled at school and eventually received a degree in engineering from Imperial College in London, one of the top three engineering universities in the country. He was a very intelligent man. But how does this link into Fred's murder? How do the gruesome crimes of a serial killer in London tie into the case we're working on? Well, Anthony Hardy spent his childhood and his school years in Windshill. He grew up about half a mile away from the deposition site. And he left for university at the age of 18, 
that's September 1969. Until that point, our deposition site was his playground. And he would have known the site. He would have used the bridge as a shortcut to Bass's Meadow before the gates were on it around 1968. Bear in mind Windshill at that time had a population of around 9,000 people. That's a small number. What are the chances of there being two murderers amongst that number? But many people believe Anthony Hardy had a particular way of doing things. Many serial killers do. They have what the police call a modus operandi, a style. His style involved killing women he didn't know, often prostitutes, for sexual gratification. Then, after death, photographing them in which he dressed the victim, using often satanic imagery in this. He then dismembered the victims in order to hide the bodies in places where no one would ever find them. On the face of it, that doesn't sound very similar to what happened to Fred. But Anthony Hardy had history. These murders were committed in the early 2000s, 2001. Is it possible for a modus operandi for a serial killer to change over time? I think it is. And I think it's provable in the case of Anthony Hardy. Hardy left university and married in 1972 and he emigrated to Australia. In 1982 he was arrested in Tasmania for trying to kill his wife. How was he trying to kill his wife? He hit her over the head with a frozen bottle of water and therefore incapacitating her and then tried to drown her only not succeeding because one of his children came into the room so if Hardy had been successful in killing his wife in 1982 his modus operandi would have been incapacitation followed by drowning not sexual gratification that is much, much closer to what might have happened to Fred. And there are two other remarkable similarities. I mentioned earlier that Anthony Hardy dressed his victims after death. What did he dress them with? And we know this because he took photographs afterwards. He dressed them in socks. Remember, the only item of clothing that Fred had on him when he was found were socks. The second similarity, at least one of the victims of Anthony Hardy had been killed through crush asphyxiation. That's where the chest or the abdomen are so compressed that respiration is not possible. There's literally suffocated, but it leaves no obvious wounds particularly if a body is allowed to decay for months or maybe years. So there are similarities. When Hardy was tried, he pleaded guilty to all three murders on day one. 
and what he said in his mitigation may also be relevant. He said it was part of a violent sexual act. He had intended to cause really serious harm by inhibiting the breathing of his victims, but it had gone too far. And when it had gone too far and his victim had died, he set about trying to make sure no one would ever find the body. It is true, when people look at the modus operandi of a man who killed prostitutes for sexual gratification, there are no links at all to Fred. But when one considers what Hardy did in 1982 to his wife, and the fact that he was there, the similarities start to add up. Now, there is absolutely no proof linking Anthony Hardy to our victim. At the moment, it remains coincidental, and there is some interesting circumstantial evidence as well. But it is something for you to be aware of. Finally, let me provide you with the latest update on the marriage data we spoke about at the end of the last podcast. If you remember, the assumption was that if the ring found on the right wedding ring finger was indeed a wedding ring, there must have been a wedding. And based on the cranid data that we got from Derby University, who said that this person maybe came from Hungary, we started with Hungarian people. So, I tried to start identifying all the Hungarian weddings in the UK that occurred between January 1969 and June 1970, the two dates that provide the limits really on when this wedding could have occurred and the body still be one of the people who got married. Now, the challenge was indeed about 500,000 people got married in that period of time and that's a very big job actually impossible to look at every one one by one so how could it be done how could we make this task feasible inevitably that required me to make some compromises what i did was this i started by identifying the 300 most common hungarian surnames Hungarian surnames are quite identifiable, that was lucky. I got myself a list of common Hungarian surnames, that gave me about 150. And then I went onto my LinkedIn account, I don't know if you know LinkedIn, it's kind of a, a business account for like contacts. I've got millions on mine, so, and lots and lots from Hungary. So I then added another 150 surnames of real Hungarians. I then took the 50 most common first names, and again, luckily, Hungarian first names are fairly easy to identify. Now, that's not perfect. He could have had an unusual name, and this processor would never find him. But when I tested the system, it gave me about 75% hit rate. So I was satisfied that the system I've got would give me a 75% chance of picking him up if indeed he was Hungarian. I was asked, after the last podcast, what if he was married abroad and then came to England? You'd miss him. Well, that's true, but remember, the ring was made in Birmingham. It was made in the UK. 
my betting is if it was made in the UK, it was used in the UK. Very, very unlikely to have made its way to Hungary. So what were the results? Well, I think I predicted in the last podcast of the 500,000 marriages, maybe there'd be 500 of Hungarian or Eastern European origin. Now we're looking at purely Hungarians at this point. In fact, there were far, far fewer, just 92 in the whole of England and Wales between January 1969 and June 1970. So that became my long list of possibilities. Now I also wanted to focus on the marriages within a say 75 mile radius of Burton. That I think is most likely. Of those 92, just 29 appear to have taken place within that 75 mile radius. So that becomes my shortlist. And I'm now currently working through every one of those 29 to see if I can identify any activity of these people after 1971. Because if there's any record of them after 1971, they can't be Fred. I'm currently eliminating them fairly quickly, but I'm down now to 11 possibilities who still can't be eliminated. So that's where we are on the marriage data. Next time on The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head, I want to go back to the late 60s, early 1970s, and specifically to the deposition site. What was happening around there at that time? I'm convinced someone within half a mile of the deposition site was involved. So I'm gonna draw a circle with a half mile radius around that deposition site and try to describe as much as I can about what was going on in the immediate surroundings of that site. We've talked a little bit about the mill, but what else was going on in the immediate vicinity? But that's next time. So until then, have a great week. The Mysterious Case of Fred the Head is a GSC Media production. Written, produced and narrated by myself, Ken Davis.